Well, as we're going through our series in First Peter, you'll recall we're in a section of the epistle where Peter is giving instruction on submitting to those over you. We saw that uh, a couple of weeks ago when it talked about submission to government. Then last week we talked about submission at work. And today we come to where he's talking about submission in the home. Now, as we talk about this, I want to tell you, we're going to spend the next three Sundays, today and the next two, talking about this. And the reason for that is twofold. One, it's because it's such an important issue. And second, it's because it is so misunderstood by many. Uh, We see that in in numerous cases, like uh, maybe you've heard of former President Jimmy Carter uh, when he said he had to leave the Baptist church that he was a part of because he couldn't be a part of a church where oppression of women was taking place because Baptist women were told to submit to their husbands. Uh, I see it when I do premarital counseling. I will often spend six to eight sessions with couples before uh, I will do a wedding with them. And when I outline what we're going to be talking about in those sessions, I tell them we're going to spend a time looking at God's roles in the home, including what submission looks like. And I have a number of couples that will tell me, well, uh, Pastor Roger, we can just skip that session because uh, we don't want a marriage where the wife is a doormat, so we don't need to talk about that. And I say that's exactly why we're going to talk about it, because that is not God's design at all. God's design uh, when it comes to submission in the home is not that the woman is a second-class citizen, not that the woman is a doormat. In fact, as we go through and look at what the scriptures say, I have had 100% of the ladies say, I want that in my home. And so I hope that what will happen is over the next couple of weeks, as we look at what God's word really says about this issue of submission, Uh, that men and women here will say, I want that in my home, and I want to live like Christ calls us to do. So as we begin looking at this topic today, we're not going to start in 1 Peter 3, 1, where it says, in the same way you wives be submissive to your own husbands. We're going to come back and talk about that next week. Instead, what I'd like for you to do is turn in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to Ephesians 5 today because there God lays the foundation of this topic. What does biblical submission, true biblical submission in the home look like? So I invite you to look with me now as we begin reading in Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. It says, wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, men, if you're tempted at this moment to start poking your wife and saying, listen up, honey, because preacher's got something important to say, uh, I want you to listen up as well. Because as you look at the very next verse, it says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, when we get to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, we're going to see that this command for wives to submit in 1 Peter 3, 1 is bookended by the instruction in verse 7 where it says, you husbands likewise live with your wives in an understanding manner or way. If you look at Colossians 3 where instruction on submission is also given, it says in Colossians 3:18, where wives are told to submit to their husband, the very next verse in Colossians 3.19 says, Husbands, love your wives. All three times that this subject of submission in the home is brought up, God always talks to both the husband and the wife. And one of the reasons this topic is so misunderstood and misused by many is because they ignore the context. 
I mean, if you're the type of person, and don't be this, but if you are, where you like to point your finger at your wife and say, woman, submit to me, I want you to look at your hand. Because you'll notice there's three fingers pointing back at you. And that's there for Ephesians chapter 5, for Colossians 3, and 1 Peter 3. Because what God is saying to you as God is giving instruction to the wife on submission, he also has instruction for men, for husbands. And so as we're talking about the context of what God says, as you look here in Ephesians 5, I want you to notice in verses 18 through 21, which are right above what we're talking about today, God has just talked about how the believer is to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And that's what helps us as men and women to do what we see in verses 21 and following. Because rather than being selfish, we are to serve one another. Now, you may have noticed I said we're to serve one another, not just that the wives are to serve their husbands. And again, we see that in the context. On this slide, you see the actual Greek text, the original Greek text, and what do you notice about it? Now, I know somebody's thinking, well, it's Greek to me, and it is, which is why I've given you a word-for-word translation underneath of the English text. This is the literal text with a literal word-for-word. And I want you to notice what I've highlighted in yellow, hupotasaminoi there, where it says being subject. That is the verb that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, hupotasso. And I want you to notice as you look at verse 22, it says the wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. Now, you don't see the word submit there, do you? That's a proper translation in our English text. But the reason you don't see it in verse 22 is because the controlling verb of that passage is found there in verse 21. Hupatasa Minoi says being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And this word hupatasso, you'll remember, is a compound word. Hupo means to place under or to subordinate, and tasso means to appoint, order, or arrange. And we saw that it describes a military chain of command. And many of you have or are currently serving in the military, and you understand the military chain of command, where the person who is over you has the authority and can give you instruction or orders. Now, as we're talking about this, remember that uh, in a military chain of command, it's not just you know the privates, the non-commissioned officers above them, the officers, and then you've got your, your generals, admirals, others up there. In the American system, you have a commander-in-chief called the president who's at the top. But the ultimate commander-in-chief and everything we've been talking about is God himself in heaven. And so if you have a man who is saying stuff that goes against what God's word says, God overrides the instruction of an unrighteous husband. And wives, when you submit to your husband, you're ultimately submitting to God himself, the commander-in-chief. Your husband is just a secondary beneficiary of your submission. And so all of us need to understand that as we're talking about submitting here, it is to God, God in heaven, ultimately, that we are under that authority. Now, earlier we saw where God always ties this call for wives to submit with what he says to husbands, showing love and honor. So it's important that we understand who it is that we're ultimately submitting to. There was a woman by the name of Barbara Peel, and she said, I struggled with this issue of submission to my husband. Until, she said, I realized that my submission to my husband is not my gift to him to be received gratefully on his part, nor is it to be a subtle form of blackmail where I say, see, Lord, how submissive I was? Now, if you want this to continue, then let's see some results. 
She concludes by saying, if I were submitting to my husband as unto the Lord, I wouldn't care what the results were. That's God's business. And men, that is true of us as well. It is not our business to make our wives submit to us. It is not your job to force your wife to submit. It is your job to be a servant leader. It is your job. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. A simple principle of application here is that as we show sacrificial love to one another, it makes the other person uh, be more willing to submit to us. So men, if you want to be treated like the king in your home, then treat your wife like the queen that you should. Now, what if a wife is married to a man who's not doing that? Does that mean she doesn't have to submit? Does it mean she ignores whatever is going on or goes to war with her husband? Well, as we're going to see next week in 1 Peter 3, 1, it says, You wives be submissive to your own husbands, so that if even any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. You see, we live in a broken system of the world. And what the world tells us is, think of a line. And you're on one end of this line, and your spouse is on the other. And what the world says is the way that you operate in the home when there's conflict or otherwise is you just kind of meet in the middle. It's all about compromise. It's all about giving. And, and so the world says it's kind of a 50-50 proposition. Well, anybody married knows it's a 100-100 proposition. You don't just do your 50% share. And so what the world says is you go through life just kind of in this series of compromise. Now, what do you do, though, when your spouse doesn't meet you halfway? Or your spouse says, you know, I gave more last time, so it's your turn to give more. And so you end up with this idea where, where one is having to go a little farther, and it's a losing game because you're keeping score. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, love does not take account of a wrong suffered. You don't keep score. And the other thing says is, well, I've been giving and giving and giving, and I'm tired of it, so I'm not going to do it anymore. And you end up not meeting in the middle. Now, what God says is there's a better design, which is to think of a triangle. As you think of a triangle, again, you can put the husband and the wife on the ends of this bottom part. But then you'll notice that God is at the pinnacle. And what God says is the way that we meet is not to meet in the middle by this system of back and forth compromise. He says the way that it operates in my system is you meet me at the top. Husbands, we've been told to love our wives as Christ loves the church. And as we live as we should, as we sacrifice, as we serve our spouse, we become what God wants us to be. And wives, as you fulfill your part where God says you're to submit to your husband by your chaste and respectful behavior, your, your husbands can be won over without a word. God says you don't meet in the middle, you meet at the top. As you both move to where God wants you to be, you end up meeting at the pinnacle. You end up becoming what God wants you to be. Your home ends up becoming what God wants it to be. Now you may be thinking, well, what if I move and my spouse doesn't? Friends, it's still a win because you become what God wants you to be. When we get to 1 Peter 3, 7, in two weeks, we're going to see where God says to husbands, your prayers can be hindered if you're not loving and serving your wife as you should. And so what happens is God says, men, as we move up that side, as we become what Christ was like, as he sacrificed and served and gave even his very life to save the church, we get closer to, to God. 
And our fellowship is not hindered. Our communion is not broken. And as we are living as we should, it becomes easier to to pray to God, to be in fellowship with him. The converse is when we're not living as we should, our fellowship is broken. We're far from God. Same thing, ladies, as you're living as you should, as you get closer to God's design for who you are, as a sister in Christ, as a daughter of his, you are in close communion with him. And what happens then is it becomes easier for us to talk to God about our spouse rather than to talk to our spouse about how they're not doing what they should. And as we pray, we can ask God to change the heart of our husband or our wife. And so, again, we are to show this mutual love and submission to one another. Now, there are those who try to force submission. Some say, well, I tried that. It didn't work. Well, keep trying. Keep working on it. But what do you do if you have, um, I said this is a, a misunderstood and misused system sometimes by men. And you will see men sometimes who say, well, I'm going to force my wife to submit. Now, another thing that they ignore about the context, that verb hupatasaminoi is what's called the middle voice. And the middle voice means that it is the responsibility of the actor to act upon themselves. So what that means, men, is not that you force your wife to submit. It means that the wife must show her submission. And we, as we submit to one another, must do that ourselves. We are responsible only for our part. But again, as I said, some men will misuse this. And they'll say, well, I'm going to force my wife. And she's going to submit to me. And what you end up with is a story I read about where a mom was in a, a doctor's office in a waiting room with her, little, with her son, little boy. And if you've ever been in a long waiting room, you know it can be difficult. And kids run out of uh, patience. And, you know, the mom had run out of books and snacks and things to keep her son occupied. And he had tried every position in the chair he could think of. And he decided now he's going to stand and jump in the chair and run around. And the mom kept saying, you need to sit down. You need to just wait. You need to be quiet. You need... And this little boy, you know, had just worn the mom out. And she said to him one more time, you need to sit down and be quiet. And he said, I won't, and you can't make me. Now, those were the wrong words to say at that moment. And the mom looked like she had been shot out of a cannon. She was on that boy and probably disciplined him in a, in a way that was not the most righteous, and after spanking this boy, uh, she said, now sit down and be quiet. And as she turned to walk back to her chair, the little boy's sitting in the chair, his arms are folded, his bottom lip is quivering, tears are coming down his, his cheeks, and he said to his mom, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. <laughs> and men, sometimes that's what you get when you try to force your wife to submit. You can look at your wife, and she may be sitting down on the outside, but she's standing up on the inside. And what you have is a bitter wife. You have a defiant wife. You have somebody who is, is not being cultivated and cherished and honored. And even worse, what you have sometimes is a broken wife, and you end up crushing her spirit, and you end up with a person who is a timid shell, and that is not honoring to God, And that is not the type of mate you should want anyway. And so as you look at what we're talking about here, when Paul says in verse 21 to submit to one another in the fear of Christ, that word fear doesn't mean this cringing, shaking uh, under your authority. Rather, the word means reverence. As we recognize who God is, his glorified, honored position, 
that we are under his authority. We reverence him. We worship him. And this is what God is looking for here. Not this fear in the home. Rather, he says there is this reverence. There is this respect that a wife would have for her husband. It's not crushing your wife. It's not controlling her. There was a man who went into a bookstore one day, and there was a a young lady behind the sales counter, and he walked up to her, and he said, "Uh, where can I find the book called Man, the Master of Women? And this young woman looks at the the guy, and she kind of dryly says, uh, the fiction section's in the back of the store. (laughs) Man, if you want to rule your home, then do it as Christ did it, as a servant. Christ the King was a servant. He sacrificed himself. He gave his life for us to save us. And ladies, as we've talked about, if you want to be the queen in your home, then treat your husband like the king, and it will make it easy for him to lead in your home. We're not to fight for control. Verse 23 says, show reverence and respect for your husband as the head of the home. Now, the head of the home, what does that mean? I was reading about a woman by the name of Rhonda Money, and she was talking about a conversation she heard one day in her living room. She said, my young daughter Crystal was on the couch with my, with my husband Mark, and they were talking between them. And, and Crystal, my little girl, sweetly said, Daddy, you're the boss of the house, right? And the father proudly responded, uh, yes, I'm the head of the home. And the little girl, this Rhonda said, this, my little girl burst quickly burst my husband's bubble and mine when she said, that's because mommy put you in charge, huh, daddy? (laughs) Ladies, let me remind you that the husband is the head of the home, not because you put him in charge. The husband is the head of the home because God has put that as his design. Now that always leads to the question, well, why? Why does God make the husband the head of the home? Well, to answer that, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. So you can turn to the first book in your Bible to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Because in Genesis 1, 26 through 27, this is what we're told. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now notice this, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So when God says there is this rulership, this dominion over his creation, it was given to men and women. Men and women are created in the image of God. And at this point, there's still perfection on the earth. There is joint dominion and rule. And as God looks at creation, Genesis 2.18 tells us, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable to him. Now that word helper is another word that sometimes causes women to cringe. They go, helper? That means I'm a second-class citizen. I'm a servant to my husband. And just like submission, people misunderstand what the scriptures are saying. Because this word helper, the Hebrew word that is used there, is used by God to describe himself. We find that in Psalm 3010, where it says, Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me, O Lord, be my helper. 
Again, in Psalm 54, 4, it says, But surely God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Now, none of us would say God is inferior to man. None of us would say God is a lowly servant to mankind. So when God uses this word helper, it's not a bad word. It's actually an honorific word. And what this term literally means is that which brings one to fulfillment. That which brings one to fulfillment. A helper is man's complement. A helper is man's completer, not his competer. You see, we end up with this this battle in the home where there's competition. Who's in charge? Who's going to have control? And the result of that is because of the fall. When sin entered the world, it corrupted God's design. And and as, as it started when sin entered the world, when Satan tempted the woman and Eve disobeyed God by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam also disobeyed God as he ate as well. And because of that, God then had to set out a certain set of punishments for the sins that had been committed. And we find in Genesis 3.16 where it says, To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, when people read that a woman's desire shall be for her husband because of this punishment of pain in childbirth, some say, well, that has to be kind of the incentive to override the pain that is coming, so there's pleasure in sex and other things that happen, and this is what it's talking about. But that's not what the word desire is describing there. The word desire uh, describes control or ruling, uh, we find that same Hebrew word used in Genesis 4, 6 through 7. There it says, And the Lord said to Cain, Cain was the son of Adam and Eve. They had two boys. And it says, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. So, It's this word that means rule or control. And what happened is in Genesis 3.16, as God's design was corrupted, the woman's desire was to have control, to override, to be the ruler over the man. And because of this, God highlighted the headship of man. You had the created order. You had uh, God's design in place, but it was originally in perfection and co-rulership. But as one began battling and trying to seize the other, God emphasizes the headship here of the man. Now, there was a lady by the name of Ellen Cowan, and she was telling her Sunday school class of six-year-olds about Adam and Eve and the fall and the penalties that came. And she said to her class, does anybody know what the punishment is that the woman received? And a little six-year-old girl shoots her hand up, and uh, she said, well, God said she had to crawl on her belly and eat dirt the rest of her life. (laughs) Now, that's actually the punishment God gave to the serpent. You remember, he said, you're going to crawl on your belly and eat the dust of the ground. But sadly, that's what some have tried to make biblical submission. They've said, well, because the woman tried to seize control, now the man has it, and it's his job to beat the woman down through submission. But that is not the design of biblical submission. Remember, the woman is not a second-class citizen. She's not a doormat. She is to be honored. She is to be loved. She is to be served. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As we're talking about what we see here in Ephesians 5, turn back a few pages to Ephesians chapter 2. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, we see what Jesus Christ did for all of us, men and women, 
as he restored what had been broken. Ephesians 2:15 through 16 tells us that Jesus, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. Now, this is speaking about how God came and took the Jews and the Gentiles, two distinct people, and he turned them into one new creation called the church. And so as we're talking about this, the context is specifically Jews and Gentiles, but the the principle also applies to the home with husbands and wives. You see, men and women, we don't have to live under the broken system of Genesis 3, where sin entered the world, and there is this division, and there is this war with one another. Instead, what God says is we're to live under Ephesians chapter 2, where God came and he restored the relationship, where he reconciled, where he brought us back together. And so as we look at this, as husbands, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, in verse 24, it says, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now, when you hear that word, everything, ladies, that doesn't mean your husband has a blank check, that whatever your husband says you're to do. If he wants you to do something that you feel uncomfortable with, uh, well, you've you got to submit to him. Or if he wants you to do something unrighteous or ungodly, you have to submit to him. No. Remember, this is all under hupotasso. And who is at the top? God is. And God's commands override any command any man would give you. And as we're talking about submission, let me make this clear as well. Guys, this doesn't mean every woman submits to every man. This is talking about a husband with his wife. The relationship is is there. So, men, this isn't every woman is subservient to you. Uh, Submission is never about subjugation. Submission is always about servant leadership. And so as we're talking about this, uh, wives are called to submit just as the church submits to Christ. So it doesn't make you, men, a dictator where you get to have and say anything you want. Because God's commands override any unrighteous demand of any husband. Now, as I said, we're to be servant leaders, not dictators. And so what that means, men, is you should sit down with your wife. You should discuss all things. You should include her in all decisions. You should gain from her wisdom. Remember, God gave the wife to the husband to be the helper, the completer. And what that means is we lack stuff that our wife can bring in perspectives and wisdom and things that you and I may not possess. Now, some men's pride get in the way and they say, well, I'm the leader of the home. My wife is to submit to me. And if I am asking her opinion, if I'm involving her in decisions, well, then somehow I'm less of a leader. No, you're not. You're not any less of a leader. You're actually being wise. Uh, Timothy tells us as men to be good managers of the home and a good manager understands the gifting of his team and he involves them in decisions. So why would you do anything less in your own home? And so when it comes to being the leader in the home, if you involve your spouse, uh, it will make it much easier to lead your, your wife because she will know where you're going. She will know why you're going there and it will be easier for her to follow. Uh, I've been married for 33 years. I've been blessed with a wonderful, godly wife. And I can tell you in 33 years of marriage, I've never once snapped my finger, pointed at my wife, and said, submit to me. 
that's not what God wants. And it's, never that, it's not that we've never disagreed on a decision, but when that happens, following the part of mutual respect and love that we see in verse 21, remember, submit to one another, I will sit down with Kim and say, listen, um, I need to understand what your concern is here. I need to understand why uh, you think this isn't a good decision. And as we talk through and as we listen to each other, sometimes one of us will be swayed to the other person's side on the decision. Now, in a rare instance, what happens where we still haven't come to an agreement? Well, in that moment, my wife has always said to me, Roger, I trust your leadership. I will do uh, what you believe is best in this situation. And that's always after a long process of listening, praying, talking through, and gaining her wisdom. You know, she has the added confidence of knowing, I'm not going to do something to hurt her. Men, I want to remind you, in Genesis 2.24, we're told that the husband and wife become one flesh. And what that means, men, is if you are doing something to hurt your wife, you're hurting yourself. Why would you do that? So as you look at your home, ask yourself, are you acting as one flesh? And and wives, when you think in terms of this one flesh principle, no healthy body has two heads. If there are two heads in the home battling one another, then it's not going to be a healthy home. Now, some women subscribe to the line from that movie. Maybe you saw it a long time ago, My Big Fat Greek Wedding. And in it, you'll remember there's a point where two women are talking and and the one says to the other, well, the husband may be the head of the wife, but the wife is the neck that turns the head. Uh, So sometimes wives are like, well, you know, he may think he's the head, but I'm the one who's who's in control of what's happening. Uh, Ladies, if your husband, and, and I get that some women are sitting here saying, well, Roger, I don't have a godly husband. I don't have one who makes good decisions. I don't have one where I trust his leadership. You know, we, we don't have time today to talk about why God says not to be unequally yoked. Sometimes we put ourselves in scenarios where we've married an unbeliever. Sometimes we have married a, a person who is not a mature believer in Christ, and we create this crisis in our own home because there's two sets of, of perspectives, two worldviews that are living in your home, uh, which is why we need to obey what God's word says. But as you, if you have a husband who doesn't lead or doesn't lead well, Uh, I'm not saying that as a woman you sit silently by and that you get run over. Remember, you're not a doormat. But what I am saying is if you have to stand in the gap in those times, don't stay there. Don't take control. Don't let your husband be lazy, ladies, and you become the leader. Instead, your role is to become his biggest cheerleader, to be his encourager, to be his prayer partner, to be asking God to give him wisdom asking God to change his heart and providing uh, the advice that you can. Ladies, let me tell you that there are some men who won't lead because they're scared to death. They're scared to death of their past failures. They're scared to hear you telling him, reminding him of all his mistakes he's made in the past, and he's saying, I just, I'm not going to try anymore. And so sometimes you need to understand the fear he has of, of why he won't lead. So again, pray for your husband. Ask God to give him wisdom, a heart where he's willing to leave. Be an encourager uh, to help him become the leader he needs to be. And men, as your wife is is trying to help you as she's offering advice, uh, don't be prideful. Don't don't say, well, I don't need to hear from you. Uh, Ask. 
Your wife has great wisdom. She has a different perspective in life than you do. She can bring things to the table you probably haven't even thought through. So why would you ignore God's gift to you of your spouse? Now, ladies, as you offer advice, uh, nudge, don't nag. Uh, You can hit a point where you become overbearing and and the husband just shuts down and says, well, I'm not going to listen. And when it comes to what you're going to bring up, ask yourself, is this a battle worth fighting? There are things you need to say, look, this is a dumb decision. Don't use that word dumb. You can say, well, I think maybe there's a better better, uh, set of options here, right? Listen, ladies, if your husband is about to make a financial decision that is going to take your family off a cliff and destroy your future, uh, you need to speak up. You need to say, listen, this, this affects, impacts the kids if you have children. This impacts uh, me. This impacts you and our future, everything we've been working for. If you have a husband who's not being the spiritual leader in the home and he says, I'm, we're not going to church, well, then you may have to step into that role and say, I'm going to continue. But as we're going to talk more about next week, there are ways to do this. So, you know, as your husband is, is making some decisions, you may look at something and go, it's just not a good decision. But ask yourself, is this, worth, is this a battle worth fighting over? You know, when we were raising my kids, we, would, we, we had a philosophy in our home that we wouldn't let our kids get a third-degree burn, right? Now, don't call Child Protective Services. I never put my children in danger. There's two of them here. They're alive and, and healthy. Uh, but w- we would say, is this going to be a first-degree burn, a second-degree burn, or a third-degree burn? And a first-degree burn was like when you would tell your child, don't touch that, it's hot, and, you know, you know the sin nature in children is there, and they want to touch things, and... You know, finally, our, our oldest daughter, one time, she, you would tell her, Sarah, no, hot, hot, don't touch that. And uh, she would go by the oven, and, you know, I felt the oven. It was warm. It wasn't going to burn her really bad. So I just said, you know, <laughs> I said, Sarah, that's hot. Don't touch it. And she's like, hot, hot, you know, knock yourself out, little girl, and hot. You know, after that, she knew what hot meant. And she never touched hot again. And so sometimes your husband has to make some mistakes. That's how you learn to be a leader sometimes is through bad mistakes. As I said, ask yourself, is this going to be a catastrophic failure where your family's financially ruined, or is this going to be something where you just kind of go, well, that was a waste of $25 or $50. And so, ladies, uh, be your husband's cheerleader encourage them. And men, when your wife says, hey, that's hot, don't touch it, uh, there's probably a good reason. Now, if you've got to get a first-degree burn, then I guess knock yourself out in it, right? But as you lead, remember, we are to do as Christ did. We are to sacrifice and serve one another. I want you to remember the battle we're fighting is not with your spouse. Rather, it's against our enemy, Satan. Men and women, Satan has been trying to destroy the home from the very beginning, the very beginning in Genesis. And our enemy is the father of lies. Our enemy is Satan. That is who we are fighting. Don't fight the family. Fight our foe. God wants us to join together and fight the enemy, not each other. And as men and women do what God calls us to do here, it doesn't take away our freedom. It allows for it. Think about a set of train tracks. If you think about the instruction we've been talking about to husbands is one set of rails, and the instruction to wives is the other set of rails, you can say, well, if a train's running along the tracks, it limits its freedom. It would be so much better if the train would just go off the rails and bump along through the countryside. 
Well, how far is a train off the rails going to go? It's not. And God is not restricting our freedom. Rather, he's allowing for it where he says, I have this design for husbands and wives to live in mutual love and respect for each other. And as we do that, as we follow God's design, it will help us to have the home he's always wanted us to have. Now, with that picture of a train in mind, let me end with this illustration. One of the worst train disasters in history occurred in the El Toro Tunnel in Lyon, Spain, on January 3rd, 1944. In that accident, over 500 people perished. So what happened? Well, the train they were riding in was one of those long passenger trains, and it had an engine at the front, and it had an engine at the back. And as this long passenger train was entering the El Toro Tunnel, this was in a time where they didn't have the modern communication we have and the way that often trains would, conductors would, could step off the back end of a train and signal with lights because they were in this kind of winding dark tunnel. There was no way to, for the front engine to see the back engine. And as they entered into this long tunnel, uh, the, fr- the front engine stalled out. And as the engine, as the train was stopped in this tunnel for quite some time, the engineer in the back engine decided he needed to start up the locomotive and pull the train back out of the tunnel to find out what was going on. Well, at the moment he started up the back engine, the front engine was able to be restarted as well. And so both engineers began to try to pull the train in two different directions. And as the train was not moving, each one thought, well, I just need to add more power. And as they continued to power up, uh, the tunnel was filling with the smoke. And over several minutes of pulling against each other, the, the tunnel filled with carbon monoxide, and over 500 people passed out and eventually died of carbon monoxide poisoning. All because the train had one too many engineers. Men and women, in your home, does the train have one too many engineers? Are you pulling together or are you pulling against one another? If we continue to fight with our spouse for control in the home, there are going to be casualties. Your children will suffer. You will suffer. Your marriage may be destroyed. And so God has given us his design to have one engineer always under the authority of Christ, and that's what he calls us to do. We join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, would you help us to be the husbands and wives you call us to be? Father, for the men here, would you help us to be those who sacrifice and serve our families? Would you help us, Lord, to be husbands who love our wives as you, Christ, love the church? For wives, Lord, would you help women to be those who walk with you? Would you help these ladies, Lord, to be honored and loved as you call them to be? Father, would you restore the brokenness in our marriages, in our homes? Would you stop the wrong behavior on both sides? Would you help, Lord, in those times where there has been hurt and offense that has been done to help us as believers to forgive one another just as you've forgiven us? Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for leaving your throne in heaven to come and give your life on a cross to give us the gift of eternal life. We thank you as well for leaving us this example of how we are to live. So would you help us, Lord, to have homes that model your design, not living under the brokenness of the fallen world we live in. We pray these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Again, thank you for being here to worship with us, worshiping online. Again, next week, we're going to come back and look at part two of what God's design is for the home. So I look forward to seeing you again. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.